And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a fantastic week. Uh, great show for you today. I was joined by the great Libby Emmons, uh, editor-in-chief of both the post-millennial and human events. Uh, and we, we had a great a great chat. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, we covered, obviously, the, the Trump arrest and what it all means moving forward. Uh, we talked about finding common ground uh, with people who we seemingly have nothing in common with. Um, and Libby actually went in some fantastic parenting advice as well. I, I definitely appreciated that as a new father. Um, I think if you're a parent, you're going to enjoy that as well. Uh, we covered a lot. I, th- I think you guys will like it. Uh, before I get to Libby, if you haven't already, guys, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to subscribe. If you are an Apple user, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right, without further ado, the great. Libby Emmons. All right, guys, we're here with Libby Evans, editor-in-chief of the Post-Millennial. Libby, thanks so much for taking the time today. Sure thing. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So obviously we have a ton to get to. Um, I don't think anybody at home would be (laughs) surprised that we have to start um, with the Trump stuff from yesterday. Um, the libs finally they got their man. They they finally arrested Donald Trump. They got their moment in the sun. Alvin Bragg uh, gets to write a book. Um, I'm sure a bunch of coastal wine moms will buy it. I'm sure he'll run for Congress <laughs> or something like that. He gets his win. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I will say we all knew these charges were bogus. Um, we kind of knew what we were going to be looking at here, but they are far weaker than I thought they would be. Um, the DA is essentially charging Trump with 34 felonies over, at best, a minor bookkeeping error. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. So, I mean, take us through how weak this case is against Trump. Yeah, I agree with you that this is a remarkably weak and stupid case. It's 34 felony counts, all of which are about uh, apparently Trump's bookkeeper improperly recording payments made to Trump's attorneys as legal fees. Uh, I was a bookkeeper for a very long time, and when you when you sit in somebody's office and you go through their check ledger, and a lot of times there's nobody around, you're just recording entries, you just put down whatever it says, attorney Michael Cohen's office, that must be legal fees, and you put it down. So I don't even know that we could, um, I don't even know that there would be an, an intent. I don't know that Bragg would be able to prove that there was any kind of intent. Most uh, CEOs of major companies never get involved in the bookkeeping records of that company. Um, I don't get involved in the bookkeeping at Post Millennial. I'm also at Human Events. I'm the EIC there as well. I don't get involved in the bookkeeping at all. Um, I think the the people who do accounting would be really pissed off if I tried to get involved in their job and there's no reason to do it. But the um, the uh, other thing too, when you look at that, it's 34 counts of the falsification of business records in the first degree. Each one of these counts, uh, there aren't that many transactions is what I'm trying to say that go along with each account. The each count, there's a, you know, there's the invoice that was received and recorded as legal fees. That's one count. There's the check that was paid out and recorded as legal fees for the same transaction. That's the second, that's second count. There's the receipt that was received and recorded as a payment for legal fees. That's a third count. And they do this across the board for a whole bunch of these different counts of uh, improperly recording payments made to attorneys as legal fees. So I wonder that they could prove intent to. And of course, then what they're saying is that these are all felonies because there was an intent to commit a second crime. So they're saying that these alleged crimes of saying that payments made to the attorneys are legal fees is actually the basis for um you know, other campaign violations, uh, which is also crazy. And I think is crazy for a couple of reasons. One, we don't have any reason to believe that Trump intentionally was making campaign donations um, in excess of the appropriate amount 
through these other, you know, by saying that these legal fees were not campaign donations. Um, and then also, I, I wonder that the American public would have been less apt to vote for Trump had they known that he perhaps had a one night stand with a porn star. Like the people that I know who voted for Trump would not have been put off by that anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's all kind of built in with Trump. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think, I mean, I think by the beginning of 2016, everybody kind of formulated their opinion on Donald Trump. And yeah, it's just not, I, you're seeing a lot of guys on the left even being hammered by the Democrat base. Um, like Van Jones was saying this on CNN, that, that uh, what's his name, Ian Milhauser or whatever, I forget his last name, but um, he writes for Vox. <laughs> there are even some lefties that are like, guys, there's nothing here. Like this is this is a really sketchy case. It's not going to hold up. And then you know, like the 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 two online Democrat base is just hammering them for it because they just want Trump to be you know imprisoned or something. But mm -hmm. it's like it's just not going to happen. I mean, proving intent with with a crime like this, I don't even know how you would you know in, intent to violate campaign finance laws. Like I, I mean, it, it seems to me, and I'm no lawyer, obviously, but like. If you cheated on your wife with a porn star, it seems like a pretty bulletproof defense of these hush money payments would be like, hey, didn't want my wife to find out. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, obviously, you're talking about Manhattan. Um, if they actually take this to trial, which I don't think this is going to trial, but, it, you know, if it does, I, I guess they could just stack the jury with these just Trump-hating New Yorkers and, you know, try to convict them of just about anything. But... I don't know. I, I think this is really weak. It's. I mean, I, I thought there was. I thought they were going to have a little bit more on them, to be honest. With all the fanfare, all the buildup for seven years now, man, you had. I. I you'd think. I don't know. I, I guess maybe it just is as simple as this guy Alvin Bragg is. Wants to be president one day. Wants to you know take that next step in his career, and he'll do anything because he knows he won't be punished by the voters in New York. Like maybe it's just that simple. It might be that. I think um, I was talking to a friend of mine who believes that Alvin Bragg just doesn't want to have to pay for a drink in Manhattan for the rest of his life, which that's, definitely. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. You know, that's definitely going to happen. He is now going to be part of New York political royalty. Uh, he's never going to have to open his own door or buy his own cocktail ever again. So that's exciting for him. Uh, they are talking about the next court date being December 4th, which I also think is absurd. Because that is these absurd. are ridiculous charges. Yeah. And they clearly just want to pummel Trump right before the primary. They will do anything to make sure that he can't run again. And what's interesting, too, that we're seeing also is we see um, DeSantis making some noise about, you know, a potential run. He's got a fair bit of support already, even though he hasn't announced. And what you see in conservative media is you see um, a lot of the conservative media essentially backing DeSantis without saying they're backing DeSantis and putting their thumb on the scale of a DeSantis nomination instead of a Trump nomination. And those are the two front runners. I mean, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Pompeo, somebody else announced the other day who was it, Asa Hutchinson. Yeah. These people are all just going to look like, you know, the Democratic um, spate of nominees in 2020, which was absurd to look at. And nobody cared about any of them. Right. You had Bernie and Biden. You know, Kamala Harris had three percent. Now, she ended up vice president, but she's the diversity hire. Um, Elizabeth Warren, nobody cares. Nobody believed that she was diverse anyway. Uh, I don't even remember who else was out there. You know, it was just an absurd lineup other, other than like Bernie, um, and Biden. So, and Biden was absurd anyway, but whatever, that's a different story. So we look at this, we look at conservative media, putting their thumb on the scale for DeSantis. We look at, um, the Trump voter, which the corporate media still doesn't understand the Trump voter. They don't understand why anyone would vote for Donald Trump. They don't understand that Donald Trump is a giant middle finger to the entire uniparty establishment in this country. Um, they just don't get it. And so the more they try and boost DeSantis, the more I think the Trump voter is going to uh, double down on Trump. And that's going to happen as we see this trial heat up or this whatever they're doing heat up, um, because Trump voters are going to say, you know what, like, go screw yourselves. 
They're going to say that over and over. They've been saying it since 2016, and they're not going to stop saying it just because people want them to, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I agree that that is exactly what's going to happen. I mean, me personally, I, like— I'm going to try to put my thumb on the scale for DeSantis, too, but for totally opposite reasons than the establishment. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a radical. I'm extraordinarily radical in, in my politics. I just I uh, there's been a lot of things about Trump's campaign right now that are troubling. Um, and what, that I just what, don't, what, what don't you like? What don't you like? It seems more like one. He's he's been so focused on DeSantis, like he's talking more about DeSantis than he is about Alvin Bragg or the Democrats or Joe Biden, you know, or anything, anything going on. You know, we just sent what mm-hmm. another half a billion to Ukraine last night. You know, was just approved. So I mean, it's like mm-hmm. it just makes no sense. And like the the kind of people he's hiring, you know, around the campaign, it's just like it, it's just like the MAGA influencer types <laughs> who get like mm-hmm. just paid to like talk shit on Twitter. And it's like, man, that is just not. One, that's not at all how Trump campaigned in 2016. Like, he ran a brilliant campaign in 2016. And the the craziest part to me, and this really jumped out, this is the craziest poll number I've seen in a long time, and it was from earlier this week, um, 62% of independent voters said that they believed Trump is guilty of all the charges he's being accused of. And this is before they were, this is before the arrest. Mm-hmm. This is before these charges were public. So, the, like, 62% of independents were basically saying, we hate Donald Trump and we won't vote for him. Like, these people, right. they have to be, like, they were answering a question that couldn't even be answered. Like, how would they even know that they approve of these charges when they haven't read them? You know what I mean? So well, it's just Brad like a, still hasn't released the felony charges. Right. He just, you know, he says it's the felony falsification of documents, 34 counts, but he hasn't said what that secondary crime is. You know, he made some noise about it in the press conference yesterday. And at Post Millennial, we were running breaking story after breaking story on what was going on yesterday. We just really wanted to track it um, as much as possible without a whole bunch of like, you know, pundits saying, we know Trump is guilty and we hate him anyway. Let's lock him up. So, we, you know, we were really covering this. I watched the um, the brag press conference. We watched the, you know, Trump talking last night and all of these things. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was out there in New York. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I really do think that this is a political prosecution in that they are trying to get him. They want to get him. They have no, um, there's like no real morality behind how they go about doing it. Uh, And you can even see other leaders from around the world looking at this going like, whoa, the U.S. is, you know, I mean, the the president of El Salvador, for goodness sake, right, is saying like, oh, this is a political prosecution. Um, And in terms of Trump and the influencer contingent, DeSantis is doing the exact same thing. Biden does the exact same thing. I mean, Biden went so far as to have, I mean, Trump did too, but Biden had like an influencer summit at the White House a couple of times. One was a virtual one where they told all the TikTokers what to say about COVID. And they had another one, Jen Psaki led it, where they told everyone what to say about Ukraine, you know, before she got her own show on MSNBC. So, you know, I don't think that the way that the campaign is being run in terms of influencers or bringing on influencers is any different than the way that campaigns are just being run now. Look at uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, right? He has a podcast. He keeps bringing out the um, essentially conservative intelligentsia to come talk to him about all kinds of issues. Um, I think he had James Lindsay out there, you know, who's, of course, very intelligent and all of that. So I think he had um, Chris Elston, who does the the Billboard Chris stuff. He does like, you know, his thing is one conversation at a time um, on the streets and stuff like that. So, you know, that is going on. I don't think that's going to change. I think what is important, though, is that the people who are paid influencers should probably say so. You know, there should be probably more transparency along those lines. Uh, As soon as we see, you know, Dylan Mulvaney out there shilling for Biden, I think it's important that um, we know that Mulvaney's being paid to do that, just like with Bud Light, Kate Spade, Ulta Beauty, whatever other ridiculous brands are signing on with him. Oh, no, for sure. I uh, 
and I, I don't think like the for any of these campaigns the paid influencer stuff at least on the mm-hmm. right i mean on the left it's kind of more mainstream it's like these people are like they put them on television they go to the white house they do you know all this stuff like on the right it's just like on, it's just twitter essentially you know what i mean like you're basically paying yeah. people to tweet but it's like only 20 percent of american voters are on twitter and out of and out of the american voters that are on twitter 70 percent of those people are leftists so you're talking about like when you're trying to influence like twitter right right wing twitter it's like you're talking about like a tiny contingent of the base which is also a tiny contingent of the party which is a tiny contingent of the voting base nationally so it's like it's well, not... where are these supposed to be where where are you supposed to go i mean everything and this is of course part of what makes trump so attractive to trump voters and to um supporters is that there's not there's not a lot of places in culture for a conservative voice. There's certainly not a lot of places in culture for a conservative voice that is, um, you know, not the sort of DeSantis lean. And I like DeSantis, right? Like I, I, I think DeSantis is great. Um, but there's not a lot of places for conservatives to see their values reflected, see their ideas reflected, um, see their jokes reflected. I mean, look at it, right? So you have, um, before 2016, before Trump was elected, you had essentially the organizations, the academic institutions, um, arts institutions and government, uh, Hollywood, um, publishing, social media, all reflecting far left progressive values. They all were doing that. Then you had Trump come in And the next thing you know, the people who are not part of that whole progressive left are seeing some of their ideas and values reflected. And then they saw their ideas and values reflected at the highest level of government in the United States and nowhere else in culture, right? There were meme wars, there were things like this, and that was on social media. But the only place that conservatives really saw their values reflected in American culture was from the highest level of government. Wasn't in Hollywood, wasn't on social media, and we've seen with the Twitter files that was deliberate. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and we see, we know in Hollywood that's deliberate publishing, etc. So that was really an interesting moment, those four years, if we can call four years a moment, where you had conservatives, you had people who were voiceless, right? If you think about the Uniparty, the MAGA group is not part of that. They were essentially voiceless. Um, the flyover people, you know, as the coastal elites, um, which I'm recovering, would call them, you know. So so then you had Trump reflecting values of the, the of his base, um, conservative base at the highest level of government, nowhere else. And then once he was out of office, it was back to like radio silence for the MAGA people, right? It was just like, there was nothing for them. There was nowhere to turn to see your values reflected in your culture. Uh, it wasn't on Twitter, right? Twitter went back into essentially lockdown for the progressive left. Hollywood constantly going, you know, going after the, uh, you know, your basic American voter, which um, publishing, academia, everything. So you know, people have been getting mad over the past few years, not being able to see themselves reflected. And now you're saying, you know, that Twitter doesn't matter. And perhaps it doesn't. But I think it does. But there isn't anywhere else for people to go. Right. Uh, conservatives tried to launch Parler as a social media app, like part of the parallel economy kind of thing. And it, Amazon shut it down right? Facebook, everybody said, oh, Parler is where they planned January 6th. And then once the reports came out, January 6th, people planning to go to the ellipse and be at that rally, that mostly happened in Facebook Messenger. You know, I was invited by friends telling me like, oh, you should come to DC. We're all going to stay at the Trump Hotel. We're going to go to his rally at the ellipse. And I didn't go, um, which is totally fine, but I had to work. Uh, but, you know, I was like, oh, I'll go hang out with my friends. That would be cool. Um, that was, but those were all on Facebook Messenger. I was barely even on Parlor at the time anyway. Then people launch Getter. They try and do that. That mostly gets crapped on by everybody else. 
um, where are people supposed to go? Like just literally, where are you supposed to go? You go on Facebook, the algorithm feeds you far left progressive ideas. You go on Twitter, you know, it's a little different since Monk, uh, Musk, rather it's uh, a bit wonky also. Um, the Daily Wire is trying to do more culture. They have a lot of subscribers and that's great. Um, Tim Pool at Timcast is trying to do more culture. Um, I think he's doing a spectacular job. I'm a big fan. Um, but where else are they supposed to go? Where are you supposed to go in American culture if you are conservative to see your values reflected? Yeah, nowhere. I mean, you're you're absolutely right, and I'm I'm totally sympathetic to that. And I'm not a I'm not a Trump hater or anything. I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's not what it's about. And I'm not saying that like. Uh, Twitter isn't important. I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time. You know, I uh, yeah, no, I mean, for sure, I me enjoy too. it. I try to influence people using Twitter, and yeah, like I, I'm all about it. It's just like I, I don't see like I, I, I don't want Trump to get the nomination. No, and it has nothing to do with Trump. I mean, it's not like I don't, I don't care about any of Trump's flaws. Like none of that bothers me at all. I just don't like. It is troubling. And, like, and let me know what I'm missing. I may be totally off here. Maybe I should be a lot more optimistic. I'm just like really pessimistic about his chances to ever win an election again because it has been seven years. We haven't really won anything in seven years. And mm-hmm. it's just like that number of, of independents saying like 62% of them saying essentially that they want the former president in prison for no reason. Because, I mean, it's like just because they don't like him, you know, because that's all they could base that off of since they haven't even read and still haven't read what the actual charges are. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I I see a lot of right wing. But these are the same people. These are the same people who still believe the Russia collusion hoax. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you know, even though that was not only totally fake, a hundred percent, but the New York times has admitted that it was totally faked. Yeah. Yeah. But so you have a progressive left that based the impeachment of a sitting president on a faked, dossier. I couldn't agree more. And the more. people who created that fake dossier, Hillary Clinton uh, and the DNC. So Hillary Clinton had this law firm, right? She hired the law firm to deal with her campaign stuff. The law firm hired an opposition research firm. Um, the campaign paid the law firm who paid the opposition research firm to create a fake dossier. I don't know that that was necessarily their intention. I wouldn't go that far. Um But um, they paid this company. The company created a fake dossier. The fake dossier got splashed all over the place, was used to impeach Donald Trump in the House of Representatives. And Hillary Clinton and the DNC came up on charges for the falsification of business records. Yeah. No, I know. Right? the, yeah. The thing, and the, their falsification of business records was because they had paid a lawyer, they had paid a law firm, they had recorded those payments as legal fees. And then it turned out that it was not actually for legal fees, but for opposition research that was faked. Hillary Clinton paid $8,000. Donald Trump, if he's convicted, faces 136 years in jail. The DNC paid $105,000, right, for this for this falsification of business records. Um, Donald Trump has to go back into the courtroom. I mean, I get it. how do you I, look at that and see that there is any kind of, you know, fairness in this, in this justice system? Oh, there's not, there's not. I mean that, yeah. I mean that we live under two entirely separate justice systems in this country, one for Democrats, mm-hmm. one for everybody else. I mean that, yeah, a hundred percent. And like with, with these people, these independent voters that say that, you know, they hate, they hate Trump and all this. It's like, I'm not even saying like just the left's propaganda won the day. I mean, it's not like they, they hate Trump, not for any, I mean, like, you know, I'm not, Trump isn't perfect. He made mistakes. Obviously there's legitimate reasons to not like him or not like certain policies and this and that. But like, it's, it's just that the propaganda machine worked. I mean, the left is way better at propaganda than we are. And it works on a Mm -hmm. majority of Americans. I mean, it's like, yeah, do these these people still believe in the, the Russia hoax? They still believe in all, all this stuff. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it it doesn't matter. It's like, and I get, I understand why Trump is so frustrated. I understand why MAGA voters are so frustrated. I get it. And I, I'm totally sympathetic. Like Trump was speaking. I'm I'm from Northwest Ohio. I'm from the Rust Belt. Like I understand mm-hmm. that Trump was speaking to people who are hurting, um, and speaking to voters in a way that they hadn't heard 
in a long, long time. I think maybe even to a greater extent than Ronald Reagan in 1980. I think so, too. I think so, too. Yeah. But it's like and the majority of voters turned on Trump because they believe the press, corporate media, they believe the propaganda. And it's, you know, the the algorithm, like you mentioned. You know, the, what we learned from the Twitter files, you know, like obviously we're being spoon fed propaganda from the highest levels of government. It's like I, I get that. And it's not fair. Like Trump has every right to be pissed off about that. I mean, they they turned a majority of the American people against him based on complete lies. But it's just like, so what? I mean, it's like if like if you're mm-hmm. a if you're a boxer, you're in a, a world title fight and you get knocked out with a punch that was after the bell, but the ref mixed it, missed it. Well, that sucks. It's cheating. It's unfair. You shouldn't have lost, but you still got your ass knocked out. So it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm totally sympathetic. You're totally right about this. I just, I'm like, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, I just don't know if I see any feasible path back. I mean, it's like, and it sucks. I wish that, I wish that, and I'm not, look, establishment Republicans, which I am not, I'm not a conservative. I'm not establishment. I'm none of that. I'm way more radical than any of these people. Mm-hmm. Like what a lot of the establishment types are like, oh, you got to cater the message to independence, right? Like independents don't like Trump. You got to cater the message to independence. That is not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. And you can see it across the country, like independents in Texas, like Greg Abbott, like independents in Florida, like, you know, DeSantis. You know, there's examples like right wing governance can be. It's not like Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis are like these are pussyfooting around. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. they're, they're both past constitutional carry, abortion bans, like all this like right wing stuff. And it's very popular. It's just like it. I'm not saying water it down or go back to some like Mitt Romney campaign. Like, God forbid. I mean, that's the quite literally the opposite of what I want. But it's just like I, I don't know how. I mean, Trump is talking about and Trump world is talking about how there's going to be this blowback and that that's the thing and maybe and tell me if i'm wrong i hope i'm wrong i i'm a libertarian like i when i'm wrong that means things are going well so like anytime i get something <laughs> right. wrong i'm stoked about that but like maga land is talking about how there's gonna be blowback like the democrats overstepped the, their boundaries they perverted the justice system we're there, there's gonna be retribution trump's gonna come back and lock alvin bragg in prison and i'm like I don't see an incentive oh. for Democrats to back off. Like they don't fear no, the right. No, they like, have. They have. Yeah. No, I agree with you. They have no incentive to back off, and they haven't backed off once this whole time. You know, no, they not had at all. like a couple of failed impeachments. The the they raided his house to get documents. Um, now they're claiming that essentially because they didn't find anything in those documents. Now they're claiming that he obstructed the investigation into the documents. They are going to do and whatever it takes to prevent him from becoming president again. Um, and the thing that really drives me crazy about that is right after the 2016 election, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time, um, you know, I, I love New York and I was there for a very long time. Um, everyone after he was elected just started saying resist. And I was like, Okay, and I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but I was like, resist what? What are you resisting? Yeah, I have to give him a chance Um, to do something wrong first. Let him do stuff. Like, let's see what the policies are. And I was was a playwright, and I was part of a rapid response theater project where you have, like, I don't know, like five minutes, 24 hours, whatever it is, to, like, write a very short play um, in response. And my piece in response That sounds super fun, by the way. But oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Theater is so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. I don't do it anymore. Now I sit in my house and uh, write articles and watch Trump on press conferences or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> um, but the rapid response that I wrote was um, it was basically saying, I don't hope that you fail because if you fail, the country fails. So I hope for your success. And just like, you know, when Obama won in 2008, who I also didn't vote for. Um, you know, I was like, I hope that you win. I hope that you succeed. I hope that America succeeds. I'm fully in support of the leadership of the country when it is working to further American interests um, and, you know, boost American prosperity. Like, I, I want that for our country. I want that for democracy. I want that for my kid, you know, all of that kind of patriotic stuff. Um, 
And so that's how I felt about Trump. Like, I didn't vote for you, but I hope you do well. I hope the country does well. And as he started rolling out different policies and stuff, I was like, oh, that's not bad. That's not a great idea. That's, you know, a pretty good idea. I thought the Abraham Accords were really great. The uh, bilateral agreements between nations where everyone got to, you know, save face and keep their own pride, which clearly was something that um, was important to Arab leaders and, of course, leaders globally, like they all want to save face. So I thought that was a good job. Um, I thought that, uh, you know, I thought that some of his efforts on um, on um, Title IX were the right way to go. I appreciated Betsy DeVos's um, saying that men should not be competing in women's sports. I think we are totally failing women uh, and girls in this country by um, not having any respect for their accomplishments and letting them just be bowled over by men who say that they're women, uh, which on its face is just a lie. And then demanding that we lie to them as well. I think that's all nuts. So as it turned out, as the Trump administration moved forward um, and I had been initially opposed to his leadership, I was like, oh, well, that's not bad. That's not bad. You know, I came around on policy um, and was able to look past the blowhard personality that so many New Yorkers found distasteful. Um, I'd worked in New York for a very long time in the uh, in the architecture industry. And so I knew a lot of architects and landscape architects and stuff who had worked for Trump over the years. And they all said, when you have a contract with Trump, front load your contract because he's not going to pay the last 20 percent. Um, and so they were pissed about that. They were pissed about the first time they worked for Trump and he didn't pay the last 20 percent. Well, after that, they would front load their contract so that uh, they would get their money up front, knowing full well that they would lose the last 20 percent. Right. So, um, you know, that was interesting, too. And I knew a lot of people who didn't like Trump in New York based entirely on his business practices, um, which, you know, like, OK, that's fair. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I wonder as we move forward, the country is so split culturally and politically. And I wonder if there's any way to unify a nation of people that are so incredibly diametrically opposed um, on so many really key fundamental issues from free speech to, you know, the nature of biological reality um, you know, to borders, uh, the nature of borders, like Ukraine's borders are worth protecting, but ours aren't, which is confusing. Uh, and yeah, I was talking to, um, Tim Poole and Charlie Kirk about this the other night. Um, mostly I was listening. I was on, uh, I was like a, uh, co-host on, that's what you call the guests who are not guests on Tim's show. And I was like, just totally fascinated to listen to them talk about this, but Um, How does a country move forward when so many people do not even see their opposition as having a goodness of heart, you know? Yeah, I mean, the shooting shooting in Nashville really—and I don't want to—I don't want to go too far here because it's not like most normal Democrat voters feel this way. At least I hope. I hope half the country aren't a bunch of degenerate, murderous monsters. But seeing like how the Democrats and the press reacted to that, essentially saying that these Christian kids had it coming because mm-hmm. you know t- Tennessee passed a law saying you can't chop off little boys' penises or or, or some such. You know, it, mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, can't, how? Like, what common ground do we have? Like, when what we're common in, ground do we have? We're living in and two entirely separate one. realities. I mean, it's like you can't. Like, I, I know conservative media, you know, has had a field day with the whole how Democrats don't know what a woman is thing. You know, mm-hmm. Matt Walsh made that documentary, which is actually good. I, I, I watched it and recommended it on the show. But um, it's like I, we make fun of stuff like that because it is so silly. And like that most actual leftists are not like this <laughs> in real life. I mean, like, you know, but I, it's not it's not really silly. I mean, yes, it's silly, but it's not really silly no, no, when no. you look at the laws. Of course. Oh, no, no, of course. The laws are devastating and the laws are, um, they're anti-woman, they're anti-child, they're anti-man. These are, you know, the, the laws that permit schools and states 
um, to keep gender identity of minors secret from parents. Oh no, I mean that's, that's a huge problem. That's exactly and, my point. I, I, I was just yeah. gonna say. I was just gonna say like. You know, it seems silly. We can just make fun of these clowns on Twitter, like saying, look at the, you know, mm-hmm. the prime minister of New Zealand couldn't, he was stumped by yeah, the question, what is a woman? And like, it's what a it's, loser. Yeah. Like we can, I mean, point... he's replacing a loser and he is a loser. <laughs> like it's amazing. Like we, we can point and laugh at that all we want and conservative media can make money off it all, all they want. But like, it is a, it is serious business. Like this is like children are being mutilated. You know, you see in California, they're, they're passing these laws saying like, uh, a therapist can essentially kidnap a kid and just take mm-hmm. them to take them to the genital mutilation center without the parents' consent. I mean, you're like we're talking about some real unspeakably yeah. evil stuff going on in these democratic areas. So it's like, but you really look at it, you're like, I I just don't know what we all have in common at this point. Like the the one thing, like to answer your question, is like, is there a way to unify a country like this? Personally. I don't think so, <laughs> but right. I, like I said, I am an anarchist. So like, I kind of think like democracy has failed. The constitution's failed. I think like, I, I, I don't think it's going to end well, but like, I'm also, you know, I live in the real world. I am a registered Republican, you know, here in Ohio. Like I have a kid. I want the country to be, you know, better for my kid than, than it, than it, you know, was for me growing up, you know, as unlikely as it may seem at the moment, you know, I'm still somewhat optimistic. That I do seems think shockingly unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I still think things can get better. Like I, I'm not like, will America last a thousand years like Rome did? No, but I think we can survive a little bit longer. I think we can have like some rebounds and, and like conservatives can govern the country well and, and make things better for a little bit. I think like the one thing that does give me a little bit of hope and this isn't about like Trump and DeSantis. We don't need to beat that to death. We'll have another year and a half to talk about that mm-hmm. endlessly, unfortunately. But right, uh, we won't be able to talk about anything else. But like looking at Florida, if we can scale that up to the national level, because like DeSantis has governed, whether you like him or not, like very far to the right, like way to the right of Trump, way to the right of Reagan. Way to, you know, just mm-hmm. very far right when it comes to, you know, he took on Disney. How do you, you know, square your libertarian thing with DeSantis government overreach? Because, I don't know, because I live in the reality. <laughs> I mean, like, because, like, I, I, I'm an anarchist because I believe that using violence against peaceful people is immoral. Mm-hmm. I'd go so far yeah, to I say agree. evil. So it's like, and, but I, I have to scale that up across the board. So it goes back to, like, do I think that if you don't pay your taxes, men with guns should show up at your house in the middle of the night, shoot your wife, shoot your dog, shoot you, and then take you to prison forever? No, I don't think that dudes with guns should be able to do that to peaceful people who didn't want to pay their taxes. So therefore, mm-hmm. you can't really have a government if you don't believe that you can have taxation. So that's where I am. But also, I'm a realist. I know that we're not going to live in this like anarcho-capitalist, stateless utopia any time in my lifetime. Probably mm-hmm. ever. Probably ever. Okay, the world will probably end before that happens. So it's like I I, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, right, right. I, I, if if you're gonna use a little bit of government overreach, I'd rather have it be protecting the lives of children and not like you know what the Democrats <laughs> overreach with you know persecuting your political opponents or, or whatever. But like right or forcing I, everyone to be vaccinated with oh, a, yes. a experimental yeah. yeah medical treatment. But with with Florida, it's it's not even about DeSantis. It's the fact that after all this right wing stuff has passed, they just they just did uh, constitutional carry. Um, mm-hmm. They just passed the heartbeat bill and all this stuff. And like DeSantis's mm-hmm. approval ratings in the 60s, you know. So it's like yeah, yeah. It is encouraging that you know, and I'm sure these state, you know, it's just as much on the legislature as it is DeSantis. I'm sure these Republican legislators are enjoying very high approval ratings as well. And it's like that was a. I mean, Obama won Florida twice. I mean, like this was until very recently a swing state. I think Trump won by less than half a point in 2016 and then won by like two points, two and a half or maybe three points or something like that in 2020. So but it is like a it at least was until very recently a swing state. And so the fact that these basically hard right wingers in the way they've been governing are still popular with a lot of Democrats and a lot of independents and like they won a majority of Hispanics in in Florida in the last election. So it's like, I feel like conservative governance can be popular under this, under the right circumstances. And maybe just maybe, maybe have a slim chance that we can scale up what we've seen in Florida nationally. 
I mean, it may be a fool's errand. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just not meant to it's be. Interesting it's interesting, too, like, with, uh, with the parental, yeah, the parental rights and education bill, which the Biden administration went hard on saying that it was called, that it should be the don't say gay bill. That was remarkably popular across the U.S. because parents have been feeling their rights as parents threatened, and they're sick of it. They want the government out of their homes, which I think is fair. Yeah. Which I feel fully as well, yeah. And essentially, that's how Glenn Youngkin in Virginia was elected as well. Um, mm-hmm. Was was yeah. the parental rights stuff, and I think that I think it was the Daily Wire that broke all that stuff in Loudoun County. Um, yeah, 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 that was their big exclusive. Was and it's stuff. like parents. Ca- I mean, I, I've I've learned this, have reinforced this this position over the last four weeks even more. But parents really care what, what happens. Yes. What happens to their kids? I'm experiencing it now for the first time, and it's like Glenn Youngkin is not. He doesn't have the personality or charisma of Trump or DeSantis or or anybody, even like, you know, I mean, he's basically just a stock, soft-spoken, middle-of-the-road Republican, and he won in a blue state. Like, he won a year after Biden won Virginia by, like, 12 or 13 points. So it's like, you can focus, like, if Republicans will focus on these issues that matter to people, like the the parental rights stuff, I think, is a, a slam dunk. I mean, you're seeing school I choice. Think so you, too. All, all the school choice bills passing they just in uh, Arizona, Florida, West Virginia, Utah. I worry Utah. about the, yeah, I mean, I'm on board with the school choice bills, but I worry about the school choice bills as some sort of, uh, you know, cure-all for the educational system because the issue is that educators across the country are steeped in progressive leftist ideology. In most states, in order to teach, or I don't know if it's most, but in a lot of states, you have to have a degree in education, right? A lot of states require master's degrees. New York City, you have to get a master's in education. Master's of education programs are far progressive leftist programs. Yeah. Um, I had a friend who I did theater with, really smart, wonderful girl. She went to library school to get a master's in library science to become a librarian. And she was already pretty left and it radicalized her to the point where the next thing I know, my local library that she was running was hosting drag queen story hours. Oh my goodness. And I was like, this was, this, what? Wait a second. Like this was not the idea, yo. And I remember when she was in library school and some of her assignments were like, you know, prepare a display and justification for the books that you show during coming out months or whatever. Oh, gosh. You know, and I was like, and this is what they're teaching. So it doesn't matter um, if you if there's no difference between the educators who are hired at your local progressive public school and your local far left progressive Catholic school, then school choice isn't going to help you. 100%. It's not going to help at all. 100%. You know, so what are you supposed to do then? When everybody, you know, even at the conservative, the quote unquote conservative schools went to teachers college at Columbia University as well. They're all steeped in the same ideology. I think like everything, it's just a, a first step. You know, I uh, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, I and I hope I hope that Republicans listen to this and, and understand what you mean. Like, please don't think that passing a school choice bill is going to solve the problem. I mean, it's certainly just you still a, have a to first go to step. that school and oh, yeah. be like, hey, what exactly. are you doing? I'm now, you know, I'm now taking my tax dollars and paying you this money. What are you teaching my kid? And I I looked I'm so my son is 13. We're looking at high school pretty soon. And I have just been devastated by and I'm like sort of an academic snob, right? Like I came up in the era of academic snobbery. I went to you know, I went to prep school, I went to liberal arts college, I went to an Ivy League grad school, right? Like I was in, I felt really good about myself doing those things. It was right. like part of the expectation of, you know, it was like part of the expectation, right? Is that this is that I would accomplish these things, that I would, you know, do all the things. So when I look at the education that I had, um, my high school, I could take philosophy courses, I could, you know, do independent studies with my teachers who were very akin to, you know, professorial quality at, you know, at the, they chose to teach at this high school. Um, they could have been professors. Uh, I did an independent study in Kafka. I did an independent study in playwriting. Um, 
you know, my graduate thesis was on Ibsen and all this other stuff. And I look at the education I had and I want to have my son have the same education um, where he's encouraged and there's thoughtful conversation. And once you're involved in a dialogue moderated, of course, by your very intelligent and thoughtful and critical thinking professor or teacher, every idea is open for discussion. There's no idea that is not available for intellectual debate. At no point when I was in high school did I feel that I had to censor an idea because it would be unpalatable to someone in the class. Um, no one did, you know, I mean, things started to change when I was in high school, actually, and there started to be like the, um, the whole political correctness thing started to come in and there started to be things where it was like, wait, I can't just say something. What are you talking about? And, you know, a bunch of us pushed back against these ideas. Um, but that idea, that concept that every idea is on the table and open for honest debate, even if it's totally wacky, just to throw it out there as an intellectual exercise, that is no more in our educational system. And by the time I was in grad school, that was that was pretty much gone. And I finished grad school in like 2007. The, the, um, other, side, the other side of that coin um, is, I mean, you're, you're totally right. I, I completely agree with you. I'm not, I'm not disputing any of that. Um, there is... You know, when it comes to policy, I I really maybe it's because I am so radical <laughs> personally, but I just really try to look at like the good and evil of it. And so it's like, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade last summer, for instance, you know, like a lot of people are saying, well, mm -hmm. this is why Republicans have been losing. That's why Republicans lost the midterm. Trump Trump said, um, you know, the abortion issue is why a lot of Republicans lost. And whether that's true or not. I'd still do it. <laughs> you kidding me? Yeah, it's like, still I, like, the it's still it, the right because, thing to do because it's the right thing to do. And it's like, I I totally agree that these school choice programs are not going to root out the leftism that's embedded in the education system. But for a lot of people, and like, I I had a completely different experience going to school. I went to public schools here in Toledo, Ohio, which were extraordinarily violent and racist. Um. It was, you know, I, I would, we'd get jumped for being white, you know, at, at some at a particular school I went to. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was bad. I mean, we had, uh, and then I, I did go to a charter school for high school and I, I graduated high school in 2007. Um, so, and there was like a lot of leftism there, but there, there was also, there was violence. I mean, kids were, this is before schools had metal detectors and stuff. Kids were carrying guns all the time. We just kind of learned to be mm -hmm. nice to the kids carrying guns. So, I mean, for a lot of parents, depending on where you are, like a, a, a poor city like Toledo, which has just absolutely atrocious public schooling, it's like just getting their kids out of that violent, dangerous situation is more important than the, the ideology. You know what I mean? Like there's no, a lot of- No, I agree of, with you on that. So and I think like, I think there should be more more schools available that don't suck for sure. Right. But and I also think it is we are we if you know, I think there's seven states now that have universal school choice, meaning like education savings accounts, each parent gets whatever usually it's like seven or eight grand a year per kid. They can spend it on whatever school they want, including homeschooling, which is fantastic. I think homeschooling, me and my wife are going to homeschool our kid. Um, I think, I, I, especially if you live in a very far left area where it's tough to find a good private school or maybe you can't afford one, you know, that's a good option. But I also think, you know, it's not it's not like we need 75% of students to leave public schools. I mean, if 10%, if 15%, pull their kids out of public schools. You're putting massive pressure on the teachers unions. You're putting massive pressures on these schools to compete. It's like, that's a lot of money out of the pockets of these teachers unions. So I think mm -hmm. just money talks. And I think it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. And the commies are going to double down on infiltrating the private schools next. You know, they're going to, they're very, Oh, the private schools are lost. I yeah. mean, the private schools were lost before the public schools. Yeah. And these people are not going to give it up. They are ideology uber alice right above all mm -hmm. so it's like they, yeah, it, they're not going to give it up but i think if we break the backs of a couple of these very powerful teachers unions um then the left is going to have some problems one i mean they fund their candidates you know but uh right. you know if we can disrupt that system it, it doesn't take a majority it doesn't take a hundred million kids leaving the public school system it just takes 10 percent. it just takes 15 percent. and i think you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but I am I am somewhat, take it with a grain of salt, but I, I'm somewhat optimistic 
that the school choice movement can down the road really pay dividends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, it's definitely worthwhile. I just, uh, <laughs> I wonder that there's any hope for the educational system at all, you know? Yeah. So. I don't. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm just trying to. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay positive, you know. I'm not. But I'm. I'm pretty black pilled on a lot of this stuff, to be honest. But. Um, are, but you, so, are you? Are you? I try the, and avoid being black pilled. It's. It's. Uh. You know. It's not. It's not an easy scenario we've got going right now, and it's funny too because, as I said, my son is 13, and um, he's into video games, and uh, he also, you know, he's into. He plays piano, and he's very into that. Um, but he, you know, he goes on Twitter and he has a YouTube channel, you know, and like when he was 10, he asked me if he could have a YouTube channel. And I said, no, not until you're 12. And when he was 12, he showed me his two year old YouTube channel. Oh no. Um, yeah. Uh, his dad told him he wasn't going to have a, he wasn't allowed to have a Twitter account. Um, no, he started a Twitter account. His dad told him you're not allowed to have a Twitter account. Uh, and so the next thing you know, my son is telling me, don't tell dad that I'm keeping my Twitter account. <laughs> and then he made a burner account just in case his dad cracked down on the existing account. So, you know, me and his dad talked about it. Obviously, I clued the man in um, and we've we've taken a slightly different approach. Um, but, yeah, it's you know, he's impacted by all of this stuff, too, like going on Twitter and he'll be like, Mom, you published an article on this. Can we talk about it? And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So what you're telling and I'm me? I'm trying not to get like, I'm trying not to let my kid get blackpilled just because he's reading like the content I put out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Oh man, I know. I've like, I'm like, obviously my daughter is four weeks old, so I have some time. But I'm mm-hmm. like. Man, the internet is forever, and I've said a lot of crazy stuff over the years. So it's like, it's going to be, uh, we're going to have some uncomfortable conversations. But I mean, but what I'm hearing is I should essentially just pack up my family, move into the middle of the woods, and just reject modernity wholesale and go off the Oh, grid. yeah. Yeah, I've been reading, um, my son and I, we've been doing uh, presidential biographies. It's our new thing. We've only gotten through one so far. We finished John Adams. Now we're on Lincoln. But um, yeah, you want to go live Lincoln's life. Out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> um, he was an expert with an axe at like eight years old or something right. ridiculous like that. Yeah, so I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I don't know. I'm a big hunter and, and fisherman, and that's basically what I do whenever I have free time. And that's what we eat too. We eat, my family eats like ninety percent. Ninety percent of our meat is wild fish and game. And oh, that's cool. I'm really gonna try to steer my kids in that direction as well. Just being out in nature, hunting, fishing, being self-sustainable being competent you know and and being able to to do these things i'm, I'm really going to try to um instill that at a very young age i don't know how young i mean there's there's limits i'm not well the I'm thing not, is I'm like not taking I a five-year-old girl lessons, deer hunting but you know i'm, I'm really going to try to push them well, in that direction i think all of these lessons really build on just having an having an honest relationship with your kids like always telling the truth I remember being confronted by this a couple of times when my son was very young, four or five, and asked me questions. Um, and I thought, like, hmm, I could tell him something vague that might spare his uh, sense, his young sensibilities, or I could just tell the truth. And again and again, I just told him the truth. Like, he, the you know, the first time he asked me where babies come from, which I think was at five years old, and I was like, hmm. How do we do this? And so, you know, I I gave him some answers that were real, true answers and that, you know, that I could build on as time goes by. You know what I mean? Uh, when, a, when a mom and dad love each other very much, blah, 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 you know, these kinds of things, when you're in a loving relationship. Um, and I also think it's so important to be clear about expectations. So when I talk to my son about, relationships and growing up, you know, I say, cause one time he asked me like, uh, I hope he never hears this. He'll be so mortified. But one time he asked me like, how do you know when it's right time to kiss a girl? And I was like, Hmm, well, you know, and we talked about it. And I, I was like, when you are grown up 
and you are in love with a girl and she's in love with you and you are good to her and she is good to you. And we've talked about that. And that was like way back when he was 10 years old or something. He asked me that question. And it was maybe a year ago when he wanted to ask me a relationship question. Um, and he said, mom, when I grow up and I fall in love with a girl and she falls in love with me and I'm good to her and she's good to me. And then he asked the question once he, but like he had that concept of a relationship yeah, already in his head. Um, and I hope in his heart, you know, like that these are the important qualities. It's not just in enough to have a girl who's in love with you. It's not just enough to be in love with a girl. It's not just enough to have her be nice to you. Like all of these things need to be part of the equation. Um, and we've, you know, we've talked about it like that. And I felt pretty good about that. And when I talked to him about adulthood, because I feel like to, in a lot of ways, we as a culture do not prepare our children for adulthood, but also we don't prepare them to be excited about being grownups. We don't right. prepare them to like, think about when I'm a grown up, I will get to do these things. So I talked to him about when you're a grown up and I say, when you're a grown, when you're, when you're a man, you, you will be responsible. You will be resilient. You will be able to take care of yourself and the people that you love. And he's, and he's like internalizing this. I also tell him you're going to grow up to be a, a big, tall, hairy man. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you that there's something wrong with that. You know, um, just judging by my family and his dad's family, like that's where he's headed. Don't be ashamed of of any of these things. See, um, I, I love that your son already has a better understanding of relationships than 90% of adults. <laughs> so, I mean, congrats right? on that. Obviously, you've done a great job. You know, I don't think Well, most, my family has a people... lot of divorce, and I just, I, he asked me also, he was like, Mom, you and Dad are divorced, which we are, which, you know, is our own personal tragedy. Um, his his parents are divorced. My parents are divorced multiple times. Like at least, you know, my son's dad's parents got divorced once. My parents got divorced over and over again. You know what I mean? Um, ridiculous. My grandparents on both sides are divorced. Do you wow. know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so I was thinking about this and I was like, damn, damn. Like it's, it's a wonder I made it at all, you know, yeah. like how, and so when my son asked me, like, will I know how to have a successful marriage? I was like, well, let's think about it. Let's work out what all those things are. And let's, let's make sure that you're internalizing those and not just getting involved with someone out of some sort of weird trauma response as all the kids tend to do now and seem really into. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's tough to like, but I think expectations are very important. You know, like I met a bunch of the expectations that were put on me and now I look at them and I'm like, I'm like, those were not good expectations. I met them, but maybe I should have had different expectations, ones that would have geared my life toward um, more happiness, more joy than, uh, you know, where where I necessarily ended up. I'm not unhappy, but like, you know, it would I, be cool if I had a bunch more babies and like, right. you know, all that, you know, I don't know that we tell our children that growing up, uh, it, it's almost as though we assume that. So like I was given all these expectations for like academic achievement and whatever, uh, get a job, be all of this kind of, you know, girl boss garbage. And then but when we look at it, it's almost like we assume that you can do all that and just by default, you're going to end up with a happy family and friends and a community that you are part of. And all of those things are not the default. If you don't instill those things, family, friendship, community, if you don't instill those as values, then they will not be achieved. Yeah. And you will end up as a grown up without a community, without, you know, like a tight family. Um, and I think that that's a real, I think that's a real tragedy for uh, definitely the millennial generation, um, you know, which is younger than me. And I think also in a lot of ways for the, you know, the Gen Xers, anyone after the boomers really just 
that did not end up as a default because we don't have a ton of brothers and sisters. We, even if you do, like you don't all live in the same place. You know, I have like three half sisters and two half brothers, and I'm very close with both of my brothers. Um, not really as much with my sisters who I didn't grow up with. I sort of vaguely grew up with my brothers, but it's like, we live all in completely opposite parts of the country. Yeah. You know, like it, it's, it's a day, it's more than a day's drive to either of my brothers, which is ridiculous. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. Like my parents and my, and my little brother all live within like a mile and a half of our house. <laughs> they live very close. My in-laws live, you know, five miles away. Like we do have a lot of family in the area. We have a great church. We have, you know, we have a, I go fishing with my neighbor all the time. You know, it's like, it's like, I did end up with that community which is a real blessing and one more thing and i know i gotta let you go we're way over time <laughs> i apologize right I'll, but, I'll just talk forever that's no that's i i love i love that the podcast turned into parenting advice because like that's what i need to hear right now and kind of that's the only thing i've been thinking about for the last month <laughs> everything mm. else seems a little like the trump stuff and everything else as crazy as it is going on it's like sometimes my wife and i will just say we're like man it's just tough to care about anything happening outside of the house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Because it's like this life-changing event. But like one thing I wish I heard when I was growing up was that at least this was my experience that everything gets better when you get older. <laughs> like I was absolutely miserable as a kid, as a teenager, school was terrible and violent and awful. I mean, uh -huh. it was just terrible. I, I like, I have one friend that I went to school with my buddy, Chris, I don't talk to anyone else. I, I didn't, even at the time, I didn't have very many friends I went to school with, just a few, you know, I just, I hated it. Every day I get up and just hate life. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was Me absolutely too. miserable. Me too, for sure. Middle and school it's like especially. My 20s were like a little bit better, you know, and then my my 30s getting better. You know, it's like every, like as I age, like life does get better. Like, <laughs> and that's like, you're told like, oh, you know, when you're in high school, that's your you know, you just live it up now because being an adult sucks. I'm like, dude, what the heck are people talking about? Yeah, I that's guess... total garbage. Yeah. I got to a... say also like your 40s, your 40s are fun. I'm having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, it's just because you get better at stuff. Like you're not yeah, good. You get you're better not at good stuff. at anything and when you you're like 21, stuff. you know? Yeah. And you stop, you stop really caring what other people think of you. Like this is something I worry about with trans ideology is so much of trans ideology is about making sure that other people look at you the way you want them to look at you. And I remember, and like, who cares? I remember distinctly, it wasn't, a, I was 32, right? That's when I realized that this was, that it was okay to not worry about how other people looked at me at all. I was 32. I was in a record shop with my mom in Princeton, New Jersey. And I was like, just going through records. Um, and I realized that I didn't care what anyone thought of my record selection and I was like, oh, nice. That's amazing. And I went over to my mom and I was like, mom, I'm not self-conscious anymore. And she goes, oh, my goodness, honey, isn't it great? And I was like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm the I'm the lead singer and guitar player in a rock and roll band. I'm a professional oh, nice. music, musician by trade. Um, I don't tour much anymore, but I, I spent you know a decade touring full time, talking six months out of the year, just on the road, pounding the pavement all the time. And I remember how critics would really get to me like you, you'd read a review of a new album in a paper and it would just really piss me off like it would hurt my feelings because i'm the i'm the primary songwriter as well so it's all my stuff mm -hmm. you know it's it's my it, it's my mind <laughs> you know on the record that people are hearing and uh it would just torture me you know like it would it would really piss me off and then I mean, now, like, I'm so far removed from that now. Like, there's nothing, like, I do not care. Like, I get, you know, I get comments on Twitter, like, your band sucks and your political opinions are even worse. Go after yourself, you know? And I'm just like, mm -hmm. I just, I'll always reply, either not reply or reply like, oh, thanks, buddy. Thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. You know, it's just like, it makes me laugh. Like, it doesn't bother me at all. And I look back to, like, when I was 25 and I'd get a bad review in a magazine I respected and it would ruin my week. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, my goodness. Like, what was I doing caring so much about what other people thought, you know? And you're totally mm -hmm. right with the trans stuff, too. It's like you're making that your entire life is just constantly these people are focusing on being affirmed by everyone around them. And it's just like I, I, I think the trans ideology is evil to begin with. But even a side note, that's just no way whether you're like that with your gender identity or with your music or anything it's like that is just no way to go through life like i can't imagine waking up every day 
pissed off that I'm not being affirmed by everyone around me. It's like, who cares? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and also (laughs) not only should it not matter to you how everybody else looks at you, but like, um, you should realize that you can't enforce it anyway. All you can really do is get people to lie to your face. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's not something you want to build your life around. Yeah. And it doesn't say a lot. Uh, it doesn't say anything good about our society that that is preferable. Being lied to is preferable than being told the truth, whether it's about gender, whether it's, you know, I don't know. If you're a Democrat telling, you know, that wanting CNN to tell you Trump's going to jail. Or if you're a Republican, you know, mm-hmm. oh, we're actually going to cut your taxes this time. We're actually going to whatever, end the wars. And yeah, it's like people like being lied to, you know. It's it's easier that way. It's a lot simpler, I suppose. But um yeah, I know. I, I got to let you go. I know you had a hard out after an hour and we just blew right past that. But let oh, me th- we did. How about that? <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Please come back soon. I had a blast. Um, where can everybody follow you online? Uh, keep in touch. Get involved. All that good stuff. Um, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Libby Emmons. I'm on Instagram at Libby Emmons. The dot is important there. Um, you can see the work that we're doing at thepostmillennial.com and humanevents.com. And if you want to help us out and become a subscriber, you can go ad-free for just $5 a month. And that is thepostmillennial.com slash subscribe. Everybody consider uh, joining up there. Definitely put your money where your mouth is. And everybody follow Libby. She's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Thank you.